This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we're talking about beneficial fungi with biologist Katherine Gehring. My name is Katherine Gehring. I'm the Lucking Family Professor at Northern Arizona University. I've also worked at the National Science Foundation, and I spent some time in Australia before coming to Arizona doing research in the rainforest there. But I've been here um, in Flagstaff about 20 years, and I study mostly right now the areas on the Colorado Plateau. I'm going to start very basically here. I wanted to see if you could describe for our listeners basically what, what a healthy relationship or a feedback loop, say, between a plant-associated fungi and its host plant. What does that look like? Well, I don't think it looks like just one thing. There are many different kinds of fungi that associate with plants, and so we often think of the ones that cause disease, but there are many that live in association with plants. So some called mycorrhizal fungi live in the soil and provide sort of a link between plants roots and the soil, and they scavenge soil resources for plants in exchange for carbon and sometimes lipids. So they get sugar and fats basically from the plants. And so that's described mostly as a mutually beneficial relationship or mutualism. There are other relationships that plants have with fungi that are called endophytes. They are less well described, but they're just fungi that live in plant tissues, but they don't cause disease. They might be beneficial. They might be beneficial only in some circumstances. They might sort of turn on the plant and act like a disease in some circumstances. And so my lab group focuses mostly on the mycorrhizal fungi, but we also have some work on root endophytes that we're beginning to do now because we see them all the time in our plant roots and we're curious about how they function. The lab Catherine mentions is the Gehring Lab at Northern Arizona University. The Gehring Lab conducts research to understand the functioning of fungi in natural and managed systems. The lab has been in operation for 20 years, includes graduates, undergraduates, and postdocs, and it collaborates with a spectrum of other research groups. Some of these endophytes are very beneficial. We're learning a lot about the mycobiome of plants and realizing that there's lots of fungi that that they associate with that plants do. And some of them, you know, in addition to mycorrhizal fungi that we know more about are proving to be very beneficial. So, yeah. Endophytes. So they either be good guys or bad guys. And what what situations or what environmental effects makes them be beneficial or not? That's a great question. Um, so we know they can protect plants sometimes, the ones that live in the, uh, the above ground parts of plants and the leaves, uh-huh. they can protect them from insects. So again, fungi are, make a lot of different kinds of chemicals and they can make chemicals that protect the plants from being eaten by insects, or they can make them unpalatable to grazers. And they're actually incorporated into the turf grass industry now, where you can get endophytes in the turf grass because then they have less pests. So that's, that's a beneficial thing. And we're like, for example, we can, we're studying tamarisk, that non-native that doesn't form mycorrhizas, but it does have endophytes. 
And so we're trying to understand what do the endophytes do in tamarisk and does it help them compete against native vegetation? Does it help them survive in the dry places where they live? Right. And is there a way you could attack them? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's, again, there's some of that and there's definitely an interest in understanding these relationships better so that you can potentially utilize them to solve problems. And you mentioned the mycorrhizal, they're down in the roots and they, they help facilitate getting nutrients to the plant. I mean, what are some examples of this? Like would, would the host plant be there without the associated fungi? So there's some very nice examples of how plants can't really survive independently. And there's actually evidence that plants and fungi colonize land together so that really they haven't ever been apart on land so that these associations are ancient. Um, so there's some nice studies on these ancient associations. And there's also nice studies from the past that show that if you try to move plants to new places, so for example, when pines were being moved to the Southern hemisphere areas where they didn't occur, if you didn't bring living soil, which had these fungi with them, you couldn't get the pines to establish. So that they're pretty important and we don't see that connection, but many of the mushrooms that we might find in our pine forests, for example, form um, these mycorrhizal associations with the pines. So for example, the Ammonita muscaria, the red mushroom with the white flecks, that is mycorrhizal. I mean, what are some factors that can affect this beneficial relationship? between the fungi and the host plant? That's, that's a great question. And that's uh, a very, you know, that's an, a, an area that we're interested in. So we, in my lab, sort of kind of look at three sort of main questions. And one is to figure out what happens to these fungi when there's a stand replacing fire. Do they survive? Do they come back quickly? And then how does that influence whether the plants come back quickly? So we're interested in what happens to fungi when we go through a drought. And so that's one of our big questions. We also are interested in how plants and fungi interact with one another. So that includes understanding whether the fungi are important in things like drought tolerance. And then the last thing that we're interested in in sort of a big way is if fungi are you know, reduced in abundance in a place, is that affecting the ability of plants to reestablish, um, particularly ones like pinyon pine that have experienced massive mortality, cottonwoods that have been lost from lots of riverside areas. And if we bring back fungi that are missing, um, does that help us bring back the plants too? So those are some of the sort of areas that we're working on right now. Can you just describe a bit of some examples of the types of experiments you are doing? I'll give you an example of one that one of my students is doing, Jillian Trimber, who's working on her master's degree right now. And she is looking at soil from Mesa Verde, where they've had fire. We're working in association with the, with actually the USGS and Flagstaff and Moab and with Mesa Verde itself and the Ute Mountain Utes. And we're trying to understand why the trees aren't coming back and whether the fact that the fungi might have burned and not really returned is a reason for that. And so we're looking at the abundance of those fungi in the burned soil and comparing that to places that didn't burn. We're looking at which fungi are found in the burned soil 
compared to the soil that didn't burn. And then we're growing plants in these different kinds of soils in different experiments to see if that explains why the pinions and the junipers really aren't coming back following those stand replacing fires. So that's a sort of an example of where we're trying to understand about you know, what happened to the fungi. And then we're also doing some experiments where we're going to try to put the fungi back and see if that solves the problem. So when you're looking at like the amount of soil around a, let's just say a, a, a pinion, is that in that soil, the fungi you're looking at, is this microscopic fungi or is it visible to the naked eye? So we call them all mycorrhizal fungi, but there's actually different types. And so for a pinion pine, if I were to just take a shovel and dig up the, the roots of the pinion pine, I could look at it with my naked eye and see if there were mycorrhizal fungi there or not. And I could do that with pines very easily. So those are called ectomycorrhizal fungi, and they're obvious on the outside of the root and visible to the naked eye. They sort of, would they be sort of attached to the, the roots themselves? Um, yeah, we call it colonizing the root. So the root is growing of a seedling. So the seedling is, for example, is growing into the soil and a fungus, a fungal spore, for example, would germinate and they would contact each other and they would make an association and they would have an area where they would exchange materials. So the fungus gets sugar from the plant and it provides soil nitrogen provides that to the plant in return. And so they have this interface that is sort of, you have to, is microscopic, you'd have to look at the root. But then as the association develops, the fungi extend out beyond where the roots can go and they morphologically change the roots. So instead of being long and skinny with root hairs, they turn into these little clubby root tips that are covered with a coating of fungal material instead. So fungal hyphae. Very neat. So you've mentioned some factors like fire, for example, that you're looking at in one, in one instance, I would imagine drought and, or, you know, climate change is also some kind of an issue that might be affecting these relationships as well. So I guess I'm curious, how would you go about figuring that out? I know you, you're doing had an ongoing study with pinion pines and the effect of drought on them. Can you just kind of describe how you'd set up this, this type of a study? Sure. So we've, we do a variety of different things. So one thing that we've done is look at a group of pinion pines over time as, you know, so again, this started before we had our first hundred year drought, right? So we've been going through these really sort of, we think each drought is going to be the worst one. And then we get um, <laughs> another worse one yet. So we started before when we were in a wet cycle and we had sampled what the fungi were on these, this group of trees when things were wetter. And then now we've done it several times when conditions are drier and we can see that the amount of fungi, fungal diversity has changed dramatically with drought. And we also do experiments in the forest. So we have what we call a common garden where we have genetically similar, you know, but we compare different kinds of drought tolerant and drought intolerant pinions and we look, plant them together in the same place. So they have access to sort of the same fungi. And then we give them different amounts of water and we look at how they grow and we look at which fungi 
they have, and we relate, you know, their growth to the kinds of the species of ectomycorrhizal fungi they have to understand their importance to drought. And then we do greenhouse experiments too, because that's our only opportunity to say, what's it like without fungi at all? Um, because we're going to have some kinds of fungi in most places in opinion juniper woodlands. So if we want to be completely without the fungi and see which fungi are the most important, we want to do that relative to no fungi at all. And we can do that through greenhouse experiments. And again, we manipulate how much water plants get so we can simulate drought. And then in doing experiments like that, we figured out that the difference between a drought tolerant and a drought intolerant pinion is really um, which mycorrhizal fungi they have. So if you give them no mycorrhizal fungi at all, they respond similarly, but it's the different fungi that you give them that makes the difference for that drought tolerance. Interesting. So if we stick with the, with the pinion juniper example, um, and say it's pre-fire and it's pre-mega drought, why would one pinion say have this fung fungi in its soil and one not? What factors could lead to the soil not having the fungi there? Prior to drought and to fire, I'd say most all of them have would have had mycorrhizal fungi. They might um, recruit different ones, just like, you know, if we were to compare the microorganisms that live on you and on me, they would be different because we're not, you know, we're not twins, right? And so you would get differences because you had different individuals, different ages, living in slightly different places, but you'd expect to have, you know, prior to drought and to fire or to, you know, non-native species, you would expect to have good mycorrhizal associations most everywhere. Okay. So we, we've mentioned things that could affect the abundance of fungi and, and drought seems to be key. Obviously fire would, you know, also, and you just mentioned unnative species. So they, they also can affect the, the populations of fungi? Yes. So not all of them, but we study one, for example, tamarisk, which is, right. uh, has taken over a lot of our riverside streamside habitat from native cottonwoods and willows. And in its non-native range where it is here, it doesn't form mycorrhizal associations. And that kind of makes sense. Um, when you think about moving to a new place that maybe you wouldn't have the fungi that you're used to. So you, if you can get by without them, you might do just fine. But after a long time of just having tamarisk, then the fungi aren't there anymore, right? The fungi that um, those mycorrhizal fungi really drop in abundance. And so we've been studying that and trying to document that. And then also some of my graduate students are trying to see if you take fungi from a native cottonwood and willow forest, and you put it in one of these tamarisk affected areas where there isn't really much mycorrhizal fungi left at all, can you then more uh, readily restore cottonwoods to those areas or willows? So if you bring the fungus back, is it easier to bring the trees back? And is it? Have, have you gotten any? Yes, yes. Wow. So in some cases, it's, it's quite dramatic. And we do this not by you know, growing up, um, we actually take some of the native soil and we bulk it up by growing native plants in it so that we have more of it. But it's really, you know, we're not modifying it in any way except to try to make more of it so that we can then put a little bit of roots and fungi, these beneficial fungi, as we plant cottonwoods for restoration. Okay. 
So if you just remove the tamarisk, then it's hard to get cottonwoods to grow again because the fungi is not there. Yes. Okay. Yes. So you're that's, yeah. And that's what we're finding. So that's what we were testing. So we know okay. the fungus isn't there, but then you have to test to say, well, maybe the cottonwoods won't, it won't matter to them, but it does. And so we do get um, you know, better performance if we add the fungi back. Neat. And it kind of leads to what some of the other questions I had about using key findings from your labs and some of your studies for restoration purposes. What kind of restoration projects have you been involved with? Yeah, so I would say mostly we, we those two species are what we've been focusing on in terms of this mycorrhizal approach, especially the cottonwoods and willows. There's vast areas where there's tamarisk as far as the eye can see and efforts are, are being made to try to really make those nice gallery forests that are important to wildlife cottonwood forests. And so we've been, we've been working on that in terms of restoration quite a bit. When you try these restorations and you want to infuse the soil with the fungi, I mean, physically, how do you do this? There's several approaches. And one thing I want to say right off the bat is that we're trying to use the native fungi because you can buy stuff off the shelf, you know, and just that's called, you know, plant growth stimulator and it's got bacteria and fungi, but that's not really sort of set up for particular places. But what we've learned is that, you know, you really have to focus your inoculum from the place conditions that exist now and not just buy some generic thing off you know, that you can buy at the store. So that's not what we, we've trialed some of those, but generally what we do is there's, again, there's many ways to do it, but one of the things that we've tried to be simple and to have it be able to be used by others is to take some native soil. So just a thin layer of soil from, for example, in the tamarisk cottonwood setting, we find some intact cottonwood forests that have mycorrhizas and the, the cottonwoods are looking good and they're near the place that we want to restore. So they're gonna be have similar soil and the communities that maybe were in the place that's now um, invaded by tamarisk. We take a thin layer of that soil, we mix it with sand and, and other kinds of sterile soil. And then we grow some cottonwoods in there and we grow some other plants that we know form mycorrhizal associations. And then we kind of bulk it up so that we have these bins that are filled with cottonwoods that have lots of mycorrhizas. And then we just take some of that root and soil mix. And then as we're planting the cottonwoods for restoration, um, we just put a, you know, basically a cupful of that in at the time that we're planting. We're trying to keep it simple and something that can be used by others without it being too complicated. Yeah. And would that be the same process after, say, a widespread fire? Would you try to bolster the soils? in that same way? Yeah, we could. And that's one of the things that we're trying in our, our Mesa Verde study is, you know, with our collaborators is to, is to put some inoculum in a restoration. And again, it's a trial. It's a, you know, we'll have a sterile inoculum that doesn't have anything in it and the live stuff. And then we have some other ways of other things that we're thinking might be important too. And those will be incorporated into the experiment too. But yeah, you can try it after fire. And people have done this with um, you know, one of the most extreme disturbances is mining. And they found that adding back uh, mycorrhizas can be really important to recovering lands after mining. 
So we're just trying to apply that same idea a little bit more broadly to other situations where you might have lost the mycorrhizal fungi because of the disturbance. Neat. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for talking with Science Moab about the wonderful world of fungi. Yeah, thank you. I like the way you said that. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.